Well, as we're studying the Sermon on the Mount together, which is in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, uh, we've come to the part in the sermon where Jesus begins to speak about divorce, and it's helpful that Jesus teaches us about divorce, because divorce affects all of us. Uh, this room is full of people who've been affected by divorce in different ways. Uh, we have children and grandchildren of divorce here. We have parents and grandparents of those who've been divorced. We have people who have been divorced, people who have instigated divorces, people who've had divorces instigated against them, people who are guilty, people who are relatively faultless. Uh, divorce is prevalent, it's part of our culture, and it's always been a part of human culture. This is not something that just was invented in the United States in the 1970s. Uh, divorce has been around as long as marriage has been around, and it's affected a lot of people. So it's not surprising that Jesus has something to say about it. It's very helpful that Jesus has something to say about it. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, please open up to Matthew chapter 5. Um, because I'm looking at two passages in, t- in conjunction this morning, I've also put it on your note-taking outline, the two passages, selected verses that we're going to look at. So if you want to pull that out too, that'll help as we jump back and forth between Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. Uh, these verses that we run across today come in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' sermon, uh, and we're calling it the best sermon ever because it is. It's, it's Christ's sermon. It's his amazing explanation of what, it's, what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And as we get to these verses, we want to remember them in context, that this is the, a whole sermon about what life looks like in the kingdom of God. Uh, this is not a list of things that we do in order to get into God's kingdom. Jesus is not giving us requirements that we have to check off so that we can then be good enough to become members of his kingdom. The whole sermon begins with him saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. If you simply come to Jesus, poor in spirit, saying, I can't do this, will you save me? He saves you. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we come to Jesus with empty hands. We come resting on grace, and he lets us into his kingdom. He welcomes us, and then by his grace, he says, now this is what life is supposed to look like. He says, if we live a distinctively Christian life, we will function like salt and light in the world, preserving the world, showing the world how good life can be with Jesus. And he shows us that there's two main ways that we can fall into these killer errors. There's the air of lawlessness on one hand. As we try to follow Jesus, we can fall into lawlessness and think, well, just because we're saved by grace completely, it doesn't matter how we live, doesn't matter what we do, and so we'll just live the way that we want to, following our sinful desires. He says, no, that's an error. But he also says the error of legalism is just as deadly. To think that now that I've become a Christian, it's all about following the rules and keeping all the laws and getting so focused on the rules that we build up our pride and our hypocrisy along with it. He says the middle way between these two errors is the way of love, the law of love. Simply love your neighbor as yourself. If we could live that way, we would avoid the errors of lawlessness, the errors of legalism. And as he goes through the sermon, then he begins to teach us about different things. And we've seen he talked about anger and murder. Then he talked about lust and adultery. And in both of these cases, he says, look, yes, murder is wrong. Yes, adultery is wrong. But it's not just about these big sins, you understand. Not just about these big, outward, demonstrable sins. He says sin is deeper than that. Sin comes from the heart. In addition to not murdering, because clearly murdering is not loving, we also must not be angry with our brothers. We must not hold them in contempt. In fact, the, the goal, the fruit of the law of love is reconciliation, forgiveness. Not only must we not commit adultery, of course that's wrong, but we also must not lust. Instead, we must be treating one another as Im- image bearers of God, human beings worthy of respect. 
And now Jesus sets his sights on divorce. In Matthew 5, 31 and 32, he teaches us what the law of love has to say about divorce. He shows us what is distinctively Christian about divorce and the way that we would deal with divorce such that we would function as salt and light in the world. So let's read these two verses and also the passage from Matthew 19 that's on your bulletin and then try to figure out what, what does the law of love look like in relation to divorce. Uh, starting Matthew 5, verse 31, Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Matthew 19, verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Uh, every week I encourage you to uh, ask questions. If you have questions, if you've got green sheets in the pews or on the back table uh, back there near the box where you can write down questions and put them in the question box. And, and last week, in anticipation of this passage, someone wrote the question, when is divorce a good choice? And rather than trying to answer that on Facebook last week, I thought, you know, that would be a good guiding question for us as we look at this passage today. When is divorce a good choice? Uh, And to answer that question, I'm going to ask three other questions as we walk through the passage together. First, is divorce always a good choice? Secondly, is divorce a good choice if you have biblical grounds? And then third, is divorce ever a good choice? Those are the questions you have on the back of your note-taking outline, if you want to follow along with that. Let's start with that first question. Is divorce ever a good choice? Sorry, is is divorce always a good choice? Is divorce always a good choice? Uh, The answer to that is no. Divorce is not always a good choice. Uh, There's an influential comedian uh, out there today. Some of you may have heard of him. His name is Louis C.K., or sorry, Louis C.K., influential comic, and he actually says yes. He says divorce is always a good choice. So divorce is always good news. This is a quote. Divorce is always good news. I know that sounds weird, but it's true because no good marriage has ever ended in divorce. Okay, he's a comedian, so that's his laugh line. It's always dangerous quoting comedians. But he's, he's somewhat serious in this, and some people have taken up this viewpoint and carrying this flag a little bit, saying, no, actually, it's always a good idea because nobody who's in a good marriage wants to get divorced, so if you're in a bad marriage and you want to get divorced, then divorce is always a good choice. But of course, that's too cavalier. That's too cavalier view of divorce. Anyone who's been through a divorce in in, in any sort of way knows it's so painful, it's so serious of a decision that you shouldn't enter it cavalier. You shouldn't say, yeah, yeah, just all with divorce. It's no big deal. But there's always been people who think that. In fact, strangely enough, some of the Pharisees 
thought that. In Matthew 5.31, Jesus summarizes first the common teaching of his day about divorce. Where he says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This is the extent of the teaching. They say, you know, if you divorce your wife, the most important thing is just to make sure that you do it properly. Get the right paperwork. If you divorce your wife, the one thing that you really have to focus on is making sure you give her a certificate of divorce. Uh, They didn't spend a lot of time, a lot of effort, analyzing whether this was a good idea to get divorced or not. The the main thing, the teaching was, if you do it, just make sure that you get the certificate. They built this teaching off a passage in Deuteronomy 24. I'm going to read it. It's probably worth flipping there if you have your Bibles. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And as I read it, try to to see if, if you think the Pharisees are getting the main teaching out of this. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, the law begins like this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if he then finds, sorry, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, he who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that's an abomination before the Lord. All right. That's why I told you to flip there. It's kind of hard to follow. Let me break it down for you. He says if, if the first husband finds something wrong with his wife and he gives her a certificate of divorce and she goes and marries another guy, then something happens to that guy. Either he dies or he divorces her. The rule is the first guy cannot marry her again. That's what the law is about. Okay. Now, the interpreters looked at that verse and they thought, hey, did you notice at the beginning of the verse it said that if he has found some indecency in her and gives her a certificate of divorce. Okay, just ignore the rest of the verse. Say, did you notice that this guy was able to divorce her because he found some indecency in her? They focus on that little word, and they make that a proof text to say, look, there's reasons here that we can divorce. If we find some indecency in our spouse, we can get rid of them, as long as we write the certificate. Clearly not the point of the passage, but they take that. And, and, the, and that interpretation builds and builds and builds. And, and by the time of Jesus, and, and actually a couple hundred years after Jesus, it was written down, it, this had grown into a huge volume of literature of all the reasons why you could rightfully divorce your wife. I don't usually do this, but I'm going to read an extended quote from one of the commentaries I was studying this week to help you understand the way they viewed divorce. So this is from the teaching around the time of Jesus. They say this, A man could divorce his wife if she were barren, if she had become a deaf mute, or if she had epilepsy, tetanus, warts, or leprosy. A man could divorce his wife if she failed to perform certain services in the home. Each day she was required to grind flour, bake bread, wash clothes, cook food, nurse the children, make the beds, and weave with wool. If she brought one servant into the marriage, she did not have to grind, bake, or wash. If she brought a second servant into the marriage, she did not have to nurse the children or cook. If she brought a third servant into the home, she did not have to make up the bed or work in wool. If she brought four servants into the home, she could sit in a chair all day long and not lift a finger. However, if her husband considered her lazy... 
he still had the prerogative to divorce her. Rabbinic law also stated that certain physical defects in the wife were so offensive that they were legitimate grounds for divorce. Consequently, a man could divorce his wife if she had a head that was wedge-shaped, turnip-shaped, or hammer-shaped, or if her head was otherwise malformed, such such as sunk in or flat at the back. He could divorce his wife if she had poor posture or if she had thinning hair. He could divorce her if she had no eyebrows, only one eyebrow, or bushy eyebrows. He could divorce her if she had a pug nose. The condition of her eyes was particularly important if she had eyes too high or too low, if she were cross-eyed, had no eyelashes, had eyes of two different colors, watery eyes or eyes as big as a calf or small like a goose. Any of these justified divorce. The man could divorce his wife if her nose were too big or too little, her ears too little or too floppy, if she had an overbite, an underbite, missing teeth, a poor figure, a swollen belly, a protruding navel, a dark complexion, bony ankles or knees, swollen feet, if she were bow-legged, suffering from swelling of the big toe, if her heel had protrusions, if the sole of her foot was as wide as that of a goose, or, and this is my favorite, if she were ambidextrous. (laughs) I would think that's a skill, but apparently it's a cause for divorce. A man could divorce his wife if she ate something he had forbidden her to eat, if she visited the home of her parents, or if against his husband's wishes, the in-laws moved into the same city to be near their daughter. A man could divorce his wife if she had a bad reputation, if she burned his supper, or if he simply found someone that he thought was prettier. Clearly, they thought divorce was not that big of a deal. It's not a big deal. Virtually any reason you can think of was grounds for divorce. And this is what lies behind the question that Jesus gets in Matthew 19.3, where the Pharisees come up to him and they ask him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? This big list of reasons that folks have developed over the centuries, is it lawful for us to divorce our wives over any cause? And Jesus says, no, of course not. Because casual divorce, flippant divorce is not loving. Real love is committed. He tells them in, in Matthew 19, 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, marriage is committed. It's, it's a joining together of two people in a lifelong commitment by God. It's meant to be a union that lasts. It's not something that you're supposed to throw away over burnt food or bushy eyebrows. It's obvious when you consider the law of love. You love your neighbor as yourself. When you get married, when you stand there before God and, and people and one another, and you make these promises to be with the other, to care for the other, to cherish the other, as long as you both shall live, what you want is for them to keep their promise to you. Right? And so if you put them yourself in their shoes, you ought to keep your promise them. That's what love is. To do anything else besides keeping your commitment is not loving. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 5, 32, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. He's saying if you, if you divorce your wife for anything but the most significant of reasons, you're sinning. Because you shouldn't just divorce. And this still applies to us today. We don't have that same list. You don't have the same excuses that they had in Jesus' day. But we have our excuses. We say, I should get divorced because we're just not in love anymore. We grew apart. We don't have anything in common. 
She doesn't respect me. He's emotionally distant. I'm unhappy. I've met someone else. They're not the person I've married. And the reasons go on and on. These are reasons that we give for divorce, but they aren't good reasons for divorce. Divorce is too painful. It's too serious to be entered into for insubstantial reasons. Which means that today, if you're here and and you're in a marriage that is simply unsatisfying, it's just not good. You're struggling to get along, or maybe you even found somebody else and you think you'd be better off if you were with them. But the teaching for you this morning is very simple. Don't get divorced. Don't get divorced. Work on your marriage. Stay committed. Hold on. Get through this rough patch. It can get better. Divorce should only be considered in the most serious of situations. Which leads to the second question. Is divorce a good choice if you have biblical grounds for divorce? The answer to that, I believe, is not necessarily. Is divorce a good choice if you have biblical grounds for divorce? I would say not necessarily. Uh, You probably noticed, because it shows up twice in these passages, uh, that Jesus does not completely prohibit divorce. This is different from what we've seen so far. As he talked about murder and adultery in the previous two paragraphs, he's quoting from the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, these come with you shall not. So you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. There's no like you shall not murder except. You shall not commit adultery except. But, but here, the divorce prohibition comes with an exception. It's built in, which means it's not always wrong. There are biblical reasons to get divorced. The clear exception that shows up in these two passages is sexual immorality. You see it in Matthew 5, 32, for example. If your spouse cheats, you're allowed to get divorced. Another exception shows up in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In that chapter, Paul's talking about the situation where one spouse becomes a Christian and the other one doesn't. And they're asking, can we get divorced for that? And he says, no, 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 you can't get divorced just because you became a Christian and your spouse doesn't. But then he says in 1 Corinthians seven fifteen, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. He's saying, if you're married, but your spouse leaves you, you can get divorced. Of course you can get divorced. Because they've left you. Um, Now, full disclosure, there's a lot of literature, people have written a lot of debate about how you interpret these exceptions, how far they go. Here's how I understand. I think what we see here is that the principle in play is if your spouse breaks the covenant in practice, you're allowed to break the covenant legally. Right? If your spouse cheats and violates the covenant uh, by being with another person, then they've already broken the covenant, so you're allowed to get a divorce and enshrine legally what's already happened. If your spouse leaves you, abandons you, they've already broken the covenant. They've left you. So you're allowed to get a divorce and enshrine what's already happened. If, if they kill the marriage, you can get a death certificate. But that doesn't answer the question, is it a good idea? Now, the Pharisees' mindset, there wasn't even a question. It was commanded. If they cheat on you, you have to get a divorce, right? You see this in the Pharisees in Matthew 19. Jesus, you know, the Pharisees come up and say, is it lawful to get divorced? Jesus says, remember, you're supposed to be together. And then in verse 7, Matthew 19, 7, they say, then why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce? 
And say, in their mind, if the, the wife cheats on you, you have to divorce her. It's a command. And Jesus says, verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce. He allowed you to divorce. He permitted it. Divorce is not commanded. You are not commanded to divorce if these biblical grounds exist. You're allowed to, but you don't have to. Just because your spouse has cheated on you or done something else that's worthy of divorce does not settle the question. It doesn't mean that you have to get divorced. In fact, you have another option. Forgiveness. Reconciliation. You could show them grace. Okay, now I say that knowing it's difficult. I'm not trying to be flippant here. But we have another option. And it is the option, after all, that God chooses to exercise with us. It's pretty common in Scripture throughout the Bible for God to frame our sin as spiritual adultery. To use that language of us breaking His covenant, of turning away after, from Him, going after other gods. He calls it spiritual adultery. We're cheating on God with our sin. It's not just sin. It's adultery. It's, it's turning our backs on our covenant spouse. Now, when we do that, when we, when we commit our sins, and we come back to God and we, we admit our sin, we ask for forgiveness, does God give us justice? Does he insist on what he's allowed? Does he say, you have cheated on me, therefore we are divorced, we are through, we are finished? No. He shows us grace. Hey, this, is, this is the wonder of the gospel, folks. This is the amazing good news that makes Christianity good news. That though you and I, because of our sin, deserve an eternal divorce from God, we deserve to be separated from him forever, to have no relationship, to be completely cut off. Even though we deserve that divorce, Jesus took it for us. Remember when Christ is hanging on the cross, bearing the sins of the world, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's divorce language. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken by God. He took the separation that we deserve so that we could get the reconciliation that he deserves. He died on the cross to take the place of us, to pay for our sins taking our divorce so that we could stay married to God. See, God shows us. He shows us this other way to respond to covenant breaking. The law of love challenges us on this point. Even though you may have permission to divorce your spouse if they've abandoned the covenant, you don't have to. So if you're here today and you're in a marriage where there are clear biblical grounds for divorce. No question. Your spouse has broken the covenant. Maybe you should get divorced. But maybe you shouldn't. Do unto your spouse as you'd have them do unto you. Remember the law of love. Give your spouse a chance to repent. And if they do, by God's grace, working through you and in you, forgive them. And pray. Pray for the grace and strength to heal your marriage because it's not easy. But it's certainly possible. Just because you have biblical grounds for divorce does not mean you have to divorce. Having said that, though, 
the third question remains, is divorce ever a good choice? If we hold up this ideal of the law of love and grace and forgiveness, does that mean then that as a Christian in a marriage, you have to become a doormat, a punching bag? As long as your spouse uh, will stay around, you have to keep forgiving them? Is it ever right to divorce? Is divorce ever a good choice? I think the answer for this is yes. There are situations when divorce is a good choice. And here's the principle to help us think through that. Divorce is a good choice when and only when it conforms to the law of love. Divorce can be a good choice, but only when it conforms to the law of love. As painful it is, as painful as it is, and divorce is always painful, it can still be good if it's loving. Now, now where am I getting that? I mean, if I'm just spouting this stuff off, just ignore me. So where's that coming out of Scripture, that divorce is sometimes a good idea? Well, first of all, I'm getting it from the fact that Jesus gives exceptions when divorce is okay. Right? It, it comes from the fact that, that exceptions exist, that Jesus does not say unequivocally, never divorce. Now, Jesus is, is explaining the law, and, and at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew seven twelve, he says, the whole law and the prophets are summed up in this, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. So he says the whole law is this law of love. And yet within the law that he's laying out there, he says sometimes it's okay to divorce which means that divorce must sometimes be loving. The possibility at least must exist. I also see this in Matthew 19, when Jesus explains to the Pharisees why divorce exists. He says, because of hardness of heart, Matthew 19, 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. This is an important principle. We need to be realists. We live in a sinful world. We live in a fallen world with sinful people, and some people have very hard hearts. Some marriage partners have very hard hearts. There are going to be people in this world who are abusive, people who are serial philanderers, people who are incredibly selfish, people who are master liars and manipulators. There are people who use and abuse their spouses and children and who will not change. And God knows this. He knows that some people have very hard hearts. And so even though the ideal is one man, one woman together for life, God loves us enough to give us the gift of divorce so that people are not trapped for their entire lives in a marriage with a hard-hearted person. I'm not used to thinking like that. You might not be used to thinking like that. That divorce is given by God as a gift. There's a reason why Jesus puts exceptions in there. I'm not saying divorce is easy. I'm not just saying divorce is uh, painless. It's always painful. It's always hard. But it isn't always wrong. Sometimes it's the most loving thing you can do. Now, I'm not going to give you a list of a million cases. The the case, it's the devil's in the details. It's very difficult to sort it out. Let me give you three big cases to end this out, ways in which divorce can be loving. And then our assignment is to kind of work through this together and figure out how this works in our everyday lives. How could divorce be loving? Well, one case in which divorce can be loving is that divorce can be the most loving thing you can do for your hard-hearted spouse. 
So if you're in a marriage where the spouse is hard-hearted, divorce may be the most loving thing you can do for them. Here's a real-life example. A guy named Rick, sorry, a guy named Nick wrote this. It says, my wife Joanne left our family and had an affair in which she lived with the other man for nearly a year. During that time, I tried everything to get her to leave him and commit to working on our marriage, but she stubbornly refused. I finally gave up and contacted a lawyer. Since then, she's been saved, for which I am genuinely happy, and wants to work on our marriage. I've been told this several times, only to find the other man still in the picture. I don't know that I can trust her. I don't know that she won't keep playing this game. This is an example of a hard-hearted spouse. Joanne is a hard-hearted spouse. She's left her family. Her husband has pursued her, but she stayed with this other man. Only when he began to make moves towards getting a lawyer did she express some sort of desire to work with him, but she's still with the other guy. She's playing both guys off each other. She's not willing to respond in a right way to come back to her husband. What is the loving thing for Nick to do in this situation? Get a divorce. The worst thing he could do is sit back and let her keep playing the game. As long as he waits there and just says, I'll be waiting here forever, she will continue in her sin. She will continue keeping Nick as her fallback guy in case this guy doesn't work out. But she's not going to choose righteousness. Ideally, this tough love of pursuing divorce will be exactly what she needs to break the hard-heartedness that's keeping her away. This principle of tough love, we embrace it with children. We understand that we have to do this, you know. Sometimes you have to tell a kid, okay, you're old enough now, you're on your own, you can't come back home. You know, it feels mean to say that sort of thing, but it's what they need to grow up. The same process in church discipline that's laid out for us in Matthew 18. You know, Jesus gives us the principle of tough love. He says that if there's a person sinning, you go to them individually, you confront them about their sin. If they repent, great. If not, you escalate. You talk to the church. If they repent then, great, welcome back. If not, you escalate. You excommunicate them from the church. See, it's the consequences that can break a hard heart and drive a person to repentance. Same thing with divorce. If your spouse is breaking the covenant in some way, staying passive is not loving. It looks loving. It looks so gracious. You're like Jesus, right? You're just suffering for the gospel. No, you're being passive. What you need to do is be active, fighting for your marriage, you know, strangely enough, by filing for divorce. Love means setting consequences and holding people accountable to them, even to the point of divorce. So, so that's one case where it might be loving. Think also about the children. Where's another way in which divorce might be loving? Divorce can be loving for children of a hard-hearted parent. We all know that divorce is bad for kids. Everybody knows that. Some of you have experienced that firsthand. And there's in no way do I want to minimize that. One reason why many people should not get divorced is because it will hurt your children. But you know what else is bad for kids? Abuse. Abuse is bad for kids. I would dare say it's worse to grow up in a home where you're being beaten by your parent than to grow up in a single-parent home because your parents got divorced. Um, growing up in a home with an alcoholic father is bad. Growing up in a home where you experience incredible dysfunction and emotional manipulation is bad. Um, Living in poverty because your mom's addicted to gambling and she blows all your money is bad. We can multiply examples. There are many, many things that hurt children, and divorce is not the worst. 
So one of the reasons why God gives us a divorce, gives us divorce, is because some parents are so hard-hearted towards their children. They do unspeakable damage to their kids. And in a situation like that, the most loving thing you can do is remove the children from the marriage. One author says this, he says, a passive response to unrepentant sin is like standing idle while an arsonist sets fire to the people we love. It's not loving. Don't let a hard-hearted spouse destroy your children. And finally, divorce can be the loving thing to do for the spouse of the hard-hearted spouse. For the spouse, we can't we can't get so focused on the rules and so focused on the the precise definition of a biblical grounds for divorce that we forget to love the victims. Sometimes our discussions of divorce uh, remind me of the scene where Jesus heals a crippled man on the Sabbath. It's in Matthew twelve. Matthew twelve nine. It goes like this. Uh, Jesus went from there and entered their synagogue. The man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, the Pharisees asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Of course, the background here is there's a, there's a commandment, right? One of the Ten Commandments. God said, don't work on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. Jesus said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if he falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. They said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. God's given a law. One of the Ten Commandments. Don't work on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees took this law, which was meant to be a gift, liberating people from the seven-hour work week. Or the seven, sorry, the seven-day work week. You know, we could use some Sabbath in our lives. It's meant to be a gift, saying, rest one day worship one day. The Pharisees take this gift and they make it burdensome so that now everybody is working hard on the Sabbath to make sure they don't work. And they're so screwed up, they're so blind to love that when Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, all they can see is he broke their rules and they go try to kill him. And I just wonder if sometimes as a church we're like that when it comes to divorce, we get so caught up in these legalistic hair-splitting definitions of what exactly is biblical grounds for divorce. If a woman has an alcoholic, abusive husband, but he never cheats, can she get a divorce? Can she get a divorce? That is a stupid question. Of course she can get a divorce. If anybody can get a divorce, she can get a divorce. That's why it exists. God gave divorce for those rare but horrible situations where you're trapped with a hard-hearted spouse. He allowed us to divorce for those very reasons. He gave us rules about marriage and divorce as a gift. Yes, marriage is wonderful. It's good to stay married. It's good not to get divorced but we can get so focused on following the rules, making sure it's a quote-unquote biblical divorce that we miss the obvious fact that sometimes the most loving thing you can do for a spouse trapped in a marriage with a hard-hearted spouse is to get a divorce. Now, if there are no questions after today, I will be amazed. So if you have questions, please write them down. Put them in the box. I'll do my best to answer them. 
you know, and maybe if they're very specific, you want to put your name on it, we can have a conversation because these are complicated issues. But I want us to hold on to these principles. If we hold on to these principles, I think we'll do well. Don't divorce for trivial reasons. It's too painful for that. Don't divorce just because you have good reasons. Grace can cover more than you know. But sometimes divorce is the right choice. And how do we know when? Like everything else in life, we know divorce is the right choice when it conforms to the law of love. Let's pray for wisdom to enact this in our lives. Father, we seriously, we need help. Uh, these issues are too complicated for extensive legislation. Uh, we need your spirit at work in us, individually and through our community, that we could speak truth in the lives of one another, that you'd help those of us who are leaders in this congregation to speak truth into our lives. Um, help us to figure out what's right and to do it. Most of all, we want to honor you and we want to love other people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.